book last week, and I want to just give a little bit of additional material. Uh, it begins, there's three main transitional periods here. We have the uh, period of uh, Eli, who was the priest at the time uh, and the leader of Israel. And uh, he uh, gets old in years. His sons become corrupt, and they begin to take the position. And uh, they uh, lead Israel into a mess of things. They lead them into a battle that they lose. And, um, and so God has basically taken his hand off of Eli and his sons. And the book begins by a young man by the name of Samuel who comes under the uh, tutelage of Eli. And as a young man is serving in the temple, uh, and uh, God begins, or in the tabernacle, excuse me, and God begins to um, uh, call him. And if you remember the story, three different times the voice of the Lord came to him. And it's interesting because at that point in history, it had been a long time, a number of years since uh, there had been uh, the voice of God that came to anyone. There was uh, chapter 3 and verse number 1 of First Samuel speaks about the fact that there was no open vision during that day. And uh, so uh, the Word of God was very, very precious to them. And uh, so this voice comes to Samuel. And, uh, of course, the, um, the third time Samuel says, Here am I. And uh, because of Samuel's um, obedience, because of his submissiveness, his responsiveness to the Lord, uh, God puts his hand upon him and allows him to be a prophet to Israel. By the way, let me just make this statement because I believe there's a very vital Bible principle taught there. And that is that when our hearts are responsive and submissive to the will of God and to the Spirit of God, He is able to do more through us and more willing to do more through us than when we are uh, so uh, enamored by the things of this world. And I don't know if you realize this or not as, as often as we ought, at least, but how much the world distracts us. Have you ever taken the time to just stop and think for that for a little bit? Uh, how often God, I think, longs, longs to speak to us and share uh, the, the uh, leading of His Holy Spirit with us. We don't hear audible voices from God any longer. We don't see open visions any longer uh, because we have the full revelation of God in His Word. Uh, but we, do we take the time to... Uh, sit alone in a quiet place with our Bible in hand, with time spent in prayer, and allow God to speak to us, the responsiveness. And I believe that our responsiveness, our yieldedness to the Holy Spirit of God uh, is in direct relationship to how much God will be able to use us in His service. And uh, so Samuel here is responsive. He's willing to be used of the Lord. He's submissive. He's a young man at this point and very tender of heart. And God begins to use Samuel and uses him for many, many years to lead the nation of Israel. And so we find this transition taking place in the first part of the, uh, of the book up to about chapter number 8 or so. Uh, we find uh, that God is using Samuel in this leadership position. The second transition we find in the book of uh, 1 Samuel is from Samuel to Saul. At the end of Samuel's life, as he gets old, a very similar situation takes place. His, his sons uh, are also not right with God. They are corrupt. And I think we find here a picture uh, in both of these cases that if we're not careful, we will focus so much on doing the work of God that we'll lose our own families. And the importance of spending time with our children and teaching our children. And Samuel is one of these ones who uh, loses his sons. And uh, so the nation of Israel is very disappointed in that. They look to that and they say, we don't want 
somebody to follow you, Samuel, in, in your position. We want a king. We want a king like all the other nations. And uh, the Israelites, uh, you got to be careful what you ask for sometimes. God might give it to us. Um, and uh, Lord willing, next hour we're going to be speaking on the, the connection that there is between fervent praying and the free will of man. And, and Lord willing, we're going to teach on that next hour if the Lord will allow it. And uh, because I think there's such a, a conflict there sometimes between our praying and what we consider to be the free will of man and what the Bible has to say about some of those things. And uh, we find here that this, uh, this uh, idea is these, uh, the Israelites want a king and uh, God allows them to have it. Is it God's will for them to have a human king at this time? No, it's not His will, but did He allow it? Yes, He did. But understand that while the nation of Israel was allowed to have a free will in the matter, they could control their choice. And I've heard this statement so often before that you can control, uh, you have control of the choices that you make, but you don't have control over the consequences of them. Uh, once you make those choices, you will live with those consequences. And so Saul begins in, in chapter number 8 and chapter number 9. We find uh, Saul coming on the scene, chapter number 12. Um, he uh, begins to, in the first years of his life, he does well. Uh, in chapter number 12, he becomes a wicked king and begins to do things. Uh, he, he gets puffed up. Uh, his pride begins to take the best of him, I believe, and uh, begins to have some idolatry uh, creeping in. He begins to um, assume roles that he does not have uh, the ability to do. Uh, he, at one point, actually performs a sacrifice, which was something only Samuel was supposed to do. Uh, another time he disobeyed God, he was told to, <coughs> to completely destroy the Amalekites, and uh, he did not do that. And uh, he told uh, Samuel, he said, I've obeyed all of the word of the Lord. And Samuel said, well, what, what are these sheep that are bleeding and the goats? He says, well, we saved the people. The people saved those uh, for, uh, for sacrificing to God and always blamed somebody else for it. But he also had kept the king alive uh, of the Amalekites. And so he certainly had not obeyed God. And uh, remember this, the great statement last week we shared with you. As Samuel told him, he said, Obedience is better than sacrifice. Even though our heart is sincere, maybe we long to, to do something for the Lord. If it's not in obedience to Him, then it is not right. Uh, God will never lead us to do something that is contrary to His character. No matter how well-meaning we may be, no matter how compassionate our hearts may be, uh, he will never lead us to do something that is out of his character. And when God told Saul to take uh, uh, the Amalekites and to completely annihilate them, uh, he expected Saul to be obedient in that case and the importance of this. And uh, so Saul begins to uh, lose his influence in the nation of Israel and gets to a place where the, even the Israelites, when David would come back from battle, would say that Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And the idea that they, he was beginning to lose uh, some of his um, uh, importance in the nation of Israel. He disobeys God, and because of that, God takes the, uh, the uh, seat of the kingdom away from him. He does not allow uh, he or his children uh, to, take, uh, to become king after him. And so we find that Samuel <coughs> goes at the command of God, and he anoints another person to be king of Israel while Saul is still king. And uh, he does this by going to Bethlehem. He goes to the house of Jesse. 
And uh, he goes through all of Jesse's sons and he looks for the best and the largest and the nicest looking and the most uh, impressive. Um, and God keeps telling him, no, that's not the one. And finally they come down to the youngest and it's David. And uh, he said, well, are you sure, Lord, this is it? And then he makes that wonderful true statement that man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And that's where we get that verse from is uh, in the anointing of David. And uh, so Saul, uh, uh, or Samuel uh, anoints David to be king of Israel. Uh, he does not become king immediately, but he is anointed to be king. It's interesting to me, that, and just, to, just by way of personal note, the character of David. Because even though David had already been anointed and knew that he was to become the king of Israel, he still looked at Saul as his king. And he still would not touch the, the, the life of Saul. Um, in fact, we're going to see something very unique today in Second Samuel uh, regarding that. But Saul uh, was honored in David's eyes, not because of uh, the things that he had done, but because he had been anointed by the Lord and had been chosen by the Lord to be that, that, uh, that person uh, for Israel. And so God, uh, David uh, certainly respected that. And uh, so we see the third transition is from Saul to David. And uh, this happens towards the end of the book of 1 Samuel. We find them going into battle. Uh, they lose the battle. At the battle, uh, Saul and his uh, sons are killed. And um, David spends the last part of the book of 1 Samuel actually fleeing uh, Saul. Saul was sought to kill him uh, numerous times. Uh, David would play on his harp for him. He would serve him in the court. And uh, all over and over again, Saul tried to chase him down and kill him. And David had his opportunities to put a stop to it. Uh, there was one opportunity where Saul uh, had uh, camped for the night in, with his men. And uh, David and a few of his men snuck into the, the camp of Saul. And God had caused a deep sleep to be on them. And uh, the men of David said, now's our chance. Let's go ahead and kill him and he'll stop chasing you. And David said, no, I'm not going to do it. And he, he uh, got a, a, a cut a knife, uh, took a knife and cut a, a piece of Saul's clothes, clothing off. And the next morning, from a distance, <laughs> he hollered at Saul and said, Look here what I got. He said, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul repented of that, went back to his kingdom, said, I won't, won't bother you anymore. But he did. He kept coming after David, kept coming after David. And uh, finally, God took Saul's life at the end. And David spends the last half of 1 Samuel basically running from place to place trying to avoid uh, Saul uh, killing him. And so we get to the end of 1 Samuel, and Saul is, is now, uh, they've had the battle, he's killed, his sons are killed, and that's where we pick up in chapter 1 uh, of 2 Samuel. And so we kind of understand what takes place here. Now, Saul is dead, and uh, God has already anointed David to be king of Israel. Uh, but it does not happen immediately after Saul's death. Uh, what takes place is when they hear that Saul has died, uh, Judah, uh, one tribe of, of all of them, uh, steps forward and said, we want David to be king. We believe he's to be the next king. And they elect him and they, they have him positioned as king of Judah. And, uh, but um, uh, we find that uh, one of um, uh, Saul's men, Abner, comes along and says, no, I don't want David to be the king. And we, we believe that, uh, uh, what's his name, Ish, Ish, 
Somebody help me here. I got his name written down here. Ishbosheth, I guess is the way you pronounce it. These Old Testament names. Ishbosheth was Saul's uh, son. And so Abner comes along and he says, I'm going to install him as the king over Israel. And really it was a puppet king. Uh, Abner was trying to gain power there and was working through him. And so you have um, uh, 11 of the tribes following uh, Ishbosheth, and you have Judah following David. And they do this for two years, and Ishbosheth kind of falls off the way and falls off the scene. Later on, he's end up, end up being killed by some of his own men uh, after Joab came and battled against them and, and prevailed against them. But it was seven and a half years before David became king over all of Israel. And so we don't really call that the divided kingdom. They don't look at that as a division of the kingdom, even though there for a short period of time, for about seven and a half years, there were there was uh, for about two years there were two kings, um, and then for uh, the other five years or so, uh, Israel was kind of without a king, and they're waiting for that. And Abner was kind of leading things and moving things around, uh, and then we have David finally becoming king over all of Israel. Uh, but we don't consider that necessarily the division of the kingdom of Israel, even though there was an interesting um, kind of squabble there internally at the beginning uh, of Second Samuel as to who was going to be king and who was going to uh, gain the rule over this. <clears throat> so Second Samuel deals primarily, you take the entirety of the book, deals primarily with the reign of David uh, during the time of uh, the Israelites and um, we find that it begins, David's story begins all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it goes through all the way to 1 Kings chapter number 2. You'll find the end of David's story there. But uh, 2 Samuel specifically is dealing with the reign of David, the time that he spent reigning over Israel. He ruled for about 40 years, uh, which is a rather lengthy period of time as you study some of the kings of Israel. Uh, not very many of them ruled for that length of time. He also becomes, during this short period of time, the standard that Israel begins to measure every other king by. In fact, to this day, they still refer to uh, David as the greatest king of Israel. And they still, even to this day, will look back and measure things uh, according to that. Some of the highlights of this book, stories that you'll find in it, you'll find how he ascended to the throne, the, the details of uh, the story of him ruling over Judah, uh, and Ishbosheth and how he became king over Israel. That's one of the primary things in the first four to five chapters. Uh, in uh, chapter number uh, seven or so, six or seven, you'll find uh, the story of uh, him committing uh, sin with Bathsheba. I'm sorry, I think uh, chapter 10. We'll find him committing sin with Bathsheba. And uh, so for the first ten chapters or so, David is uh, a godly king. Israel prospers. Uh, under his obedience to God. And then we see the fall of David in chapter 10, chapter 11, as he falls with Bathsheba and has uh, the, uh, the sin with her. To hide his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he sends her husband to a hot spot in the battle and has the men withdraw and basically murders Uriah the Hittite, uh, who was Bathsheba's husband. And um, then, of course, we have the story of Nathan the prophet coming in to David. And he talks about a man who had a lot of uh, cattle and a lot of sheep. And, uh, and uh, some visitors came to his house and uh, wanted to, he wanted to create a feast for them. And rather than taking one of his many sheep that he had, he went to his neighbor who had only one sheep. And that family looked at that sheep as a pet. And it was part of their family. 
And the rich man took that one sheep of the family next door and stole it and brought it over and slaughtered it and gave it uh, to, um, to uh, his guests as part of the feast. And Nathan said, what should be done to a man like that? And David said, well, uh, we ought to, we ought to uh, uh, punish him for it. And he came up with some punishments for it. And at the end of David pronouncing his own judgment, Nathan looked in at him and said, Thou art the man. You're the one that did it, David. You took this one man's wife and you committed adultery with her. And you're the one that stole the sheep. And David was mortified by that. It's interesting to me that even though David committed sin, I mean, terrible sin, he commits uh, adultery, uh, he commits murder, and yet God continues to... Uh, 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 look at him as a man after his own heart. When we look at what Saul did to have the kingdom taken away from him, <coughs> and then we look at the sin of David, some of us would sit here and say, why didn't God take David's throne away? I mean, look at the sin David committed. I mean, that's horrible stuff. And the difference was the responsiveness to the sin. David is a man who, if you take time to read some of the Psalms, he's a man who is constantly saying, Lord, my sin is ever before me. He speaks of the fact, he says, search me and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He speaks of the fact that he wants God to continuously uh, cleanse his heart. To continuously, and it, was, and it was his love and his passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and, and for God uh, that I believe made the difference in how God viewed this. And it helps us to understand this, that there's none of us that are going to be perfect. None of us. But we can all be faithful in our relationship to God. And while David had some personal issues in his life with regards to sin, when that sin happened, he responded appropriately to it. He was mortified by it. He purposed in his heart, I'm not ever going to do it again. He repented of it and said, Lord, I'm so sorry for these things. And uh, literally would put himself in sackcloth and ashes. And uh, was so, so uh, appalled by his own failure to God. That really ought to be the right spirit of any person that has sin in their life. To have a repentant spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And because of that, God continues to consider him a man after his own heart. In fact, so much so that he allows David to still be in the lineage of the Messiah. So much so that he tells, that he tells later on in the New Testament that Christ will sit on the throne of David. That this, this, this uh, throne is an everlasting throne, an eternal throne. But unless we get here and say, well, uh, as long as we have the right kind of spirit, then we can just go out here and sin however we want, right? Right, Pastor? No, that's not the lesson. The lesson is he was mortified by his sin. And then I want you to notice this. From chapter 11 to the end of the book, all of prosperity that David so enjoyed in the first part of 2 Samuel, all of the blessings of God on his life during that time of 2 Samuel, all of them are gone. He now begins to bear the consequences of his choice. Was he forgiven? Yes. Was God gracious and merciful to him? Yes. Did God wrap His arms of restoration around him and love him again? Yes. Was he without the scars of his sin? No. Because for the rest of David's life, we find he bears the consequences of this choice. 
From chapter 11 on, you'll find that David's rapport with the nation of Israel. They had, they had lifted him up. They had great respect for David. They were the ones that said, Saul is slain as thousands and David is tens of thousands. They were the ones that paraded in the streets and lauded him as king. He begins to diminish in his glory. The people of Israel began to lose their, their, their respect and their love for him. So much so that by the end of the book, Israel begins to rebel against David and tries to actually overthrow David. That's how, that's how far David falls in the consequences of his sin. His baby that they had through the immoral relationship he and Bathsheba had dies. And David sorrows over that. Because of David's sin, Amnon uh, has an, uh, uh, an incestuous relationship with his half-sister. Because of the incestuous relationship, Absalom comes along and kills Amnon, one of David's other sons. Absalom also is rebellious to David. He takes the kingdom away from David and seeks to slay his own father so he can have control of the nation. And we get to the end of 2 Samuel and we look at this and say, what a mess David's life is in. But he's still a man after God's own heart. Because in all of it, he never fails God. He never fails in his faith. Did he bear the consequences of his sin? Absolutely. One of the things I think that we need to understand as Christians is God is always faithful to forgive. God is always merciful to us. There will be some blessings of God still upon our lives, I'm certain, and there were still some blessings that God gave to David along the way. But the consequences of our choices... May, there, may be there for the rest of our lives. There may be scars that are there for the rest of our lives because of the sin that we have committed. I've heard people talk about the fact, well, uh, God's a loving God, God's a merciful God, God's a forgiving God, and He is. And because of that, they say, then it doesn't matter how I live. I can go out here and live however I want to. Because all i got to do is come back and repent and tell God I'm sorry, and God will forgive me again. And He will. He will. But we will bear the scars. The Bible still tells us that God is a just God and to be sure that our sin will find us out. There will be penalties to pay. There will be things that will happen. One of the greatest lessons I think we can learn if we were to take one, one wholesome lesson, one, one top lesson of Second Samuel would be this, that our actions never affect just us. Our actions never affect just us. They have a lasting and a profound effect on others. They have a lasting and a profound effect upon others. David's children. Look at what they went into. All because of David's choices, David's sin. The loss of a child. Losing the favor of those... I mean, Somebody said it this way one time. It takes a lifetime to build a testimony, and it takes just a moment to destroy it. And here's David, a man after God's own heart, that the kingdom looked up to and respected and loved, that in a moment, in just one choice, in a moment of sinful pleasure, he lost it all. He lost it all. Let me give you some of the uh, things about the book to try to be a help to you. Of course, we... Uh, don't believe that Samuel is the author because uh, 
Samuel had died prior to uh, the events of this, uh, some of the events of this book, but it was probably compiled by a single person. We don't know who that person was, but it was compiled by three different sources that we know of uh, that uh, are spoken of in First Chronicles chapter number 29 and verse number 29. Uh, the uh, writings of Nathan the prophet, uh, we know that uh, some of the things that he had uh, written down are some of the sources that we get this particular book from. There was also a man that was uh, a godly man that was able to see things and, and to be a, pro, uh, a prophet of sorts by the name of Gad. Uh, he also had some writings, and they took some of those writings from him and some of the accounts from his writings. And then uh, in First Samuel or in Second Samuel chapter number one, if you'll take a minute and turn there with me, <clears throat> let's look at this very quickly. There was a third one that we don't often hear of uh, in Scripture, and that is uh, uh, Jasher, I think is the way you pronounce it. Also, uh, chapter 1, verse number 18, Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So uh, at least this particular thing, uh, this particular instance of the account of them being taught uh, to use the bow, was taken from an account from the book of uh, Jasher. So three different sources that we know of from Scripture that we get this particular book, uh, first Sam, or Second Samuel, from. It was more than likely compiled after the death of Solomon, even though it deals with the events before that, but it was probably done before the Assyrian captivity of uh, once the kingdom did divide after Solomon, the, what was referred to as the northern kingdom, um, before the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom. And the reason we believe that is there is no record or indication of anything uh, regarding the captivity of the Assyrians. Uh, and so we believe that it was somewhere around the 720 or so, uh, or so uh, I'm sorry, 930 or so B.C., excuse me, 930 or so B.C., that the compilation of this book took place. And so uh, kind of gives you a little bit about the author and the, the time frame of this. Uh, Christ is pictured, again, as he is so often in Old Testament books, in the character of David, that uh, in spite of the fact that he uh, does sin here, and obviously we've said this before, that no uh, Old Testament picture is a perfect picture of Christ because these are sinful men in the Old Testament. And of course, Christ was sinless. But there are things about them that characterize and are used to picture some of the things about, uh, about Christ. Um, and the closest way that we know that this is a picture of Christ is found in chapter number 7. And this is where we're going to spend uh, the majority of our lesson this afternoon or this morning on. If you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want us to look at a couple things here. Uh, God makes a covenant with David. And understanding that, <clears throat> you know, we have things in modern day that we often relate and say, okay, a covenant is like this. Uh, contracts, promises, um, uh, trusts, things like this that we would make. And we say a lot of that is like a, a covenant. But the truth is, in a covenant, and I heard somebody say it this way the other day. I, I think it was Brother Tully on this lesson the other day. Um, a promise is something that only one person is responsible for. If I come to you and I say, uh, I'm going to come wash your car this week, I promise you, then the obligation of the keeping of that is only on me. It's not on you. Whereas in a covenant, when two people enter into an agreement together, the keeping of that covenant is dependent upon both parties. The responsibility of the keeping of that is upon both parties. That's why it's so important for us to understand that Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, is the surety, he's the guarantor of the new covenant. 
Because there was a covenant that God made at Calvary between man and him. And the truth is, because we are sinful men, we cannot keep covenant with God. At some point, we're going to break it. And if we were, if we were at a place where we could lose our salvation, then it would just be a covenant between God and man. But because Christ is the surety, He's the guarantor of it, then when we sin, our salvation is still intact because it's not dependent upon us keeping our side of the covenant. It's depending upon the fact that Jesus Christ is the guarantor and has kept that side of the covenant for us. The covenants were to not be broken to the point of death. And so God comes to David, and I just say that by way of emphasizing the importance of making a covenant. This is beyond a contract. This is beyond a promise. This is something that is life and death. And God comes to David, and he makes a covenant with him in chapter number 7. Let's look at it real quickly in verse number 4. We're going to begin reading. <coughs> and it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but I have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with, all, with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build not ye not me a house of cedar? So they've been in the promised land for a while now. And God says, You're going to build me a house? That was David's desire, to build a temple, a permanent temple for God. And, uh, and he says, are you going to build me a house? He said, after all this time? He said, I've even asked people, asked the children of Israel, why build you not me a house? But notice what he says here in verse number 8. Now, therefore, so sh meaning because you've offered this, because you've done this for me. Notice what he says in verse 8. Now, therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over uh, my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that uh, he will make thee an house. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? He, he had, David said, Lord, I want to make you a house. And God comes back and he says, because I've done all these things for you. He said, I'm going to make you a house, David. Now notice what he says here. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, he's saying, you're not going to do it, but I'm going to raise up a seed out of you that will do it. And speaking of Solomon, verse 14, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him. And that amazing promise. This is a covenant that God is making with David. He says, if he sins, I, I, I'll chasten him, but I'm not going to depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established, notice these two words, forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these works, according to all the vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So we find some promises that God makes to David.
Now, uh, hold your place here for a minute and turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Luke, chapter number 1, and uh, we'll be done here. We're just going to look at one quick thing here, and regarding how David is very much a picture uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ in this sense. Luke, chapter number 1, and let's look down to verse number 30. Uh, Let's go down to verse number 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. Look at what it says here, verse 32. He shall be great. Now, that's one of the promises God gave to David, isn't it? He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. And so we find that God uh, gives a testimony to Mary that in Jesus, in Jesus, all three of the promises that were given to David by God are going to be fulfilled through him. That Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of that covenant that God gave to David all the way back in Second Samuel chapter number seven. And so again, we have a wonderful picture here. Even though he's not specifically spoken of as the Lord Jesus Christ in, uh, in 2 Samuel, we don't see a mention of the Lord Jesus Christ. He certainly is very easily pictured and seen in the Old Testament. If you take time to, to look through the Old Testament books, I think personally it is impossible to not see the Lord Jesus Christ even in the Old Testament. He's found throughout all of these books. There are pictures of him that point to him. There are things that uh, testify of his coming. And while he's not mentioned by name, he certainly is mentioned by the, uh, the actions and the pictures of some of these folks that were given to us in the Old Testament. And I uh, love these, these Old Testament stories. And um, we're going to get to the end of Second uh, Samuel and uh, get into the first two chapters of First Kings. And David's reign is going to end. And uh, we're going to take a little look at that next week and see what happens with Solomon. And uh, we'll move on from there. I hope that will be a help to you today. Certainly so many lessons that we can learn and that can be taught from the life of David and some of these other Old Testament saints. So let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer and uh, have our next service here in just a few moments. Father, I do pray that you'll bless the time that we've spent together. May it be profitable. May May the things that have been said and taught be helpful to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide our steps, help us to live the way that you would want us to live, and to be more of what you would have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.